Isn't that awesome? Let's give another round of applause. Those kids, students getting baptized, making a decision to follow Jesus and wanting to celebrate that with this new family of faith. So good morning. Glad you're here to worship God together and open his word as we do each week. So you're going to want a Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, I just slip up a hand. We'll get a Bible to you. People walking around, passing those out. And as they walk around, you can go on and uh, flip open to the book of Romans, where we have been the last few months, making our way there, uh, chapter by chapter. And we'll actually be in Romans 11 this week, Romans 11. So this is officially the beginning of the holiday season, uh, you know, Thanksgiving Thursday, and then from that moving swiftly into Christmas and a new year. Hard to believe that we're already in that time of year. And so in this season of Thanksgiving, it felt like this was actually a really appropriate place to open up the Bible to as, uh, as we've come to this place in, in Paul's letter to the church in Rome where he has declared the goodness and the mercy, the grace of God for all people, for every nation, for Jews and Gentiles, that God has made a way for us to be reconnected with our creator, with the true king of the world. And Paul, having laid out this mysterious, miraculous plan of God, having seen how God worked through all of human history and all of biblical history in ways that we could have never guessed at or imagined, fulfilled his plan that he had in mind from the beginning in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus was the point of this all along. All things were pointing to Jesus, and Jesus was making a way for all things. And so as he comes to the end of Romans 11, it's like his heart is just full, having expressed and dove deep into this wonderful mystery of how God has woven together this beautiful plan. And so at the end of Romans 11 is this song, this declaration of God. And I'll just read. It's just a few verses, but we're going to kind of dive deep into, into some of those verses here this morning. Starting in verse 33 in chapter 11, Paul declares, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is a song of praise. Reflecting on the genius, the goodness of God. But even as you see this song of praise, notice that in it there are these three sets of three. We have three character attributes of God. We have three questions, and then we have three declarations. And so we're going to look at what Paul is, is declaring about the heart of God, and then hopefully see how that plays itself out in this incredible invitation into our own lives. So we have these three character attributes of God. 
right there at the beginning. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That can also be just translated out as, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge. Riches, wisdom, and knowledge. The riches there, if you want to write in your Bible or in your notes there, the riches are referring to the kindness of God poured out for us. The kindness of God poured out for us. Remember back to Romans and, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul writes, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness poured out. In his letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 7 he writes, in him, being Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. That we experience the, the, the lavish, overwhelming nature of the grace of God poured out on our lives. That's the same language as John will write in his, in his letter, 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we can be called children of God. And that is what we are. The riches of God's love and grace poured out on our lives. And I just wonder if even this morning, getting, preparing our hearts for this Thanksgiving week, if we just need to remember the riches of God's love that has been poured out lavished on you. It's this image of this overwhelming overflow pouring over us beyond our imagination. And even just to pause for a second and re to reflect, where have you experienced this overwhelming, lavish love and grace of God in your life? Where are the places that, that you've looked at your past, at your story, and thought, I don't deserve it, or I blew it there, or man, did I mess up, or walk down the wrong road, and yet God showed up. The riches of his grace. But it's not just like a loving old grandfather that likes you no matter what you do, that doesn't quite understand that, yes, that you are, you are failing in life miserably, but you're his. He thinks you're awesome. You could go set the church on fire and be charged with arson, and he would think that you are still the best person on the planet. No, it's not just this blind, lavish love of God, but he sees all things. It's the wisdom of God revealed, that he's omniscient, that he has full knowledge of what is true and right and real. That we can trust God because he actually sees things as they are, including us. He knows you inside and out. But he also knows the way this world, this universe was created to run. He, he knows the way life was meant to be lived. He is wise beyond measure. And he revealed himself in the person of Jesus, who the Bible tells us is the, the visible image of the invisible God. That if we want to know what God is like, we can look at Jesus. So Jesus wasn't just a good person full of grace and love. He was also the wisest person that ever lived. 
that he really knows the best way to experience and to live out this life that God created for us. Isaiah 55, 8 declares, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we have this perspective of life, and oftentimes we can think we're pretty smart about it. Now, we understand how things work. We understand how this world goes. We know what's going on. But the reality is, it's like, like ants trying to explain what is happening in an office building. God, who sees above all things, our limited perspective that, that is so easily swayed and, and distorted about ourselves, about the world, about God, but that God sees above and over it all. He's the one that can be trusted to. He can be the one that can be listened to. J.I. Packer is an incredible theologian. He wrote, uh, Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal, together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is, in fact, the practical side of moral goodness. As such, it is found in its fullness only in God. He alone is naturally and entirely and invariably wise. And Paul, having just got, spent the last few chapters reflecting on the biblical history of, of the promises and the covenant given to the children of Israel that it seems like that they missed or they walked away from, and yet from their family line, Jesus the Messiah is born, making a way not just for the Jews to be back rightly related to God, but for all people, the Gentiles. And, and, and Paul reflecting on like, who could have not just known the, or what is best, but also known the best way to get there. Yesterday, I was, uh, this weekend, had the, the privilege of, of leading the group of guys that I'm, I'm discipling. We did an overnight uh, retreat, and, and I was rushing back from that to get to my son's game, soccer game, uh, in Tucker in time. And I had like a, a five-minute uh, like between what it said from when I was leaving up in South Carolina to when the game would start at like a five-minute margin. So I couldn't miss anything, any turn I had to follow. And, uh, and as I'm, I'm coming down 85, all of a sudden, Waze, thanks be to Waze and to God, <laughs> tells me to exit randomly. And, uh, and trusting ways as I do, I, I exited the exit ramp. And as I'm exiting and heading down, I look to my left, and traffic is completely backed up and not moving from that point on forward that I never saw. And so I found this way around, this exit that I would never would have turned down. Instead, it would have ended up backed up into traffic. Now, that's a silly example, I know. But imagine a God of the universe who stands above all things, who sees all things, and he knows the destination that he's aiming for, and he also knows the best way to get it, which often, to get there, which oftentimes doesn't feel like the right way to us. And so we can see this on this cosmic biblical level, right? But it's also true in your life. God is good. He is kind and gracious, and he is wise. And there are ways that he is leading you that at times don't make sense. 
And he's also so good that even the brokenness and the failures of our lives, he is so good that he can take those things and actually mold something beautiful out of them. That in fact, sometimes your greatest failures end up in the kingdom becoming your greatest sources of strength. The places that you've been freed from addiction, the places that you've been healed in your soul and in your life have, are actually the places that now God can use to accomplish his purposes. He's that good. Amen? Can you receive that truth in your own story and in your own heart? And there's ways that he begins to lead us. It's like my heart is to, I want to, to, to go serve him overseas. I have this burden to go and to lead him overseas. And yet somehow he's telling me to, to move to Snellville. I'm just making up a total hypothetical. Snellville's a great place to live, but it doesn't feel like getting, moving me overseas. But all of a sudden I look back at my life and go, oh, if I never moved there, I would have never met that person who introduced me to that person who then opened up that door. And I look at my life 30 years later and I go, ah, that's what God was doing. We took a huge detour in, in our own family story. Ten years ago, as we were praying about how God was leading us and felt like he was moving us into, into a new season and, and took us over to London where we thought maybe we were going to be partnering with a, with a ministry that was over there. Took our, our two little girls uh, who were just babies at the time. Now one of them has graduated high school. And, uh, but the, our children over there to pray about is, all right, God, how are you leading us over here? Thought for sure. Came back, and God led us on a different path to a small town called Monroe, Georgia, where we actually get to do the very thing that we were dreaming about 10 years ago doing in London, but with some amazing people that we never would have dreamed getting to meet, which is y'all. So the times you feel discouraged or maybe that you feel like you've, that, that you're uh, stuck, just remember, you're never stuck in the kingdom. And God is always pursuing a path forward for you if we'll keep listening to him. His kindness, his wisdom, and his knowledge can almost feel redundant. Wisdom and knowledge, isn't that the same thing? Well, the words there are actually very different. Wisdom, that higher elevated position of seeing all things rightly. Knowledge is this intimate, experiential, relational awareness. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, Paul writes, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Knowledge is beyond wisdom, this expansive omniscience of God. Knowledge is this intimate experience of God. It is, and I alluded to it, I said I'm talking about wisdom, but the knowledge is a God who knows you intimately, once desires to relate to you, for you to experience him. John 17.3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, it's the same root as knowledge, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 
It carries with it not just this sense of knowing information about, but experiencing, encountering deeply. You think about a spouse or a best friend or a child. There's a big difference between knowing facts about that person and knowing that person, right? We know that difference in our own lives. And, and we have a God that's not just wise, but a God that's knowing. A God that knows you and wants to be known by you. Paul then asks these three questions. Actually coming out of Isaiah. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And who has ever given him a gift that he might be repaid? These rhetorical questions, the answer is, well, no one. <laughs> no one. And no one. No one has ever fully known God. His ways are higher than ours. No one has ever told God what to do. He's the one that's in charge. No one's ever given to God that God's going, oh, man, thank you. I was missing that. And yet somehow, even in the questions, is an invitation. We've never, no one's ever known God, and yet somehow God wants us to know him. No one has ever been God's counselor, and yet in John, uh, in, in John 14, God said, or Jesus says to his disciples, hey, it's better for you that I go away, because unless I go away, or when I go away, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send my counselor to be with you, this Holy Spirit. And there's this counselor that is available to us with God in Christ. And there's no one that can ever repay God or, or give anything to God, and yet there's this desire of God that we give all things to him. There's a story, uh, we, we talked about this a few years ago. Sorry, I realized I didn't silence my phone. My son is at a soccer game right now. It's a big end-of-the-year tournament, so I will try not to keep checking my phone to figure out what the score is. We were joking, though, that Randy, my dad, in the back would, uh, could be, like, flashing me score signs. <laughs> the big championship. Not that I'm thinking about that. We're in the Bible. Come on, let's get in it. <laughs> now, a few years ago, we, we talked about this story as we even, um, actually just talked to someone this morning, uh, about as uh, we were praying about the restoration of this, of this property, this campus, and this dilapidated, vandalized, abandoned property that we felt like God was, was calling us as a community of faith to, to restore and to engage. And calling our church uh, to what would it take to, to, to give towards this in a generous, sacrificial way. To give above and beyond the things that, that were already being given just for the ministry and mission of the work of the church to continue. But this sacrificial call that if God has given us this huge vision, then he's also asking us to, to sacrifice for that vision. But that God also has the resources to accomplish that vision. So there's really no pressure on us at the end of the day anyway. So there's this beautiful invitation to participate in what God is doing, and yet at the same time, there's no pressure on us to accomplish what God is going to do. He's going to do what he's going to do. We just get to be a part of it. And so we looked at this, this story, and actually it's in, uh, in 1 Chronicles 29, if you want to go back to that. It's the story of King David. At the end of his reign, the deepest desire of his heart is that he wants to build a temple where the presence of God can dwell with his people. 
And, and he wants to, to have this place of worship, of God's glory, recognizing that God cannot be contained by a building, but there would be this space that worship could happen. And really, his heart was that the rest of the nations could look at this place and say, the God of those people is good. And yet God told David, you're not the man to build the temple. There's, there's too much blood on your hands. You've, you've fought too many wars, too many battles. But I'll let your son do it. So David, doing everything he could, knowing it wasn't his generation, but the next generation that was actually going to fulfill the dreams in his heart, which I think are important, is important for us in itself, that sometimes the dreams God gives us aren't dreams that we will ever see the fulfillment of, but we are simply setting up the next generation to, to step into those dreams. So dream big. But David's big dream that he passed on to Solomon, but before he died, the thing David did do was to, to gather, to rally all of the people around this vision, to give towards this dream. And in 1 Chronicles 29, David stands in front of the assembly of leaders and says, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. He doesn't know what he's doing. That's some loving, fatherly encouragement right there. The task is great. It's too big for him because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. And he continues on and, and, and talks about that he's given of the king's treasury, but he's also given of his personal treasury. So he says, with everything I have, I have given. And what's amazing as that story continues is it says that, that the leaders respond to, their, to the king's uh, sacrifice. And they in turn say, we will give. And so the king and the leaders, having given sacrificially out of their abundance and wealth, the people respond and see. And they say, we will give as well. So much generosity, so much giving, so much sacrifice. But this is the point. At the end of, of all of this generosity and, and this call to, to give to God's dream and God's temple. First Chronicles 29, 9. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. It'd be at this point easy to say, man, how awesome that the king gave so much. How awesome that the leaders responded with, with such sacrifice. How awesome that the people rallied with such generosity. But it says that David praised the Lord and listened to his prayer. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor comes from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. So now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? 
And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. But notice in David's prayer, this recognition that everything in heaven and earth is yours, God. That everything comes from you in the first place, and that we really only give back to you what was already from you. It all belongs to you. And it's with the echo of this, you can imagine, and maybe even with this story in mind, as, as uh, th- this picture of this physical temple being built for the sake of the kingdom, and now Paul looking and seeing the reality of the kingdom being fully built in the person of Jesus, and Paul saying, Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Do we recognize that the things in our life are from God? And even our ability to create or to build, to work, to accomplish anything comes from Him. The breath in our lungs, a heart that beats, muscles that work, a mind that thinks all of it is from Him in the first place. Every resource, every asset, Everything we have belongs to God and is from God and is for God. Do we live with this sense of gratitude and appreciation for what God has given? Or like a world that doesn't know God, do we live with a sense of entitlement and pride? as if we have built our lives for ourselves, as if we are responsible for the goodness that we experience, as if we deserve any of it. My mentor, a pastor named Buddy, who started the Grace Churches, uh, passed away a few years ago, but one of the things I remember uh, that was just kind of his, one of his hallmarks, and just remember being with him on different trips and things, is that any time that he would see a beautiful sunrise or, or a beautiful sunset, he would stop whatever he was doing, and he would just start to applaud. Well done, God. Good job, God. It was just a way of, of breaking and recognizing that the beauty that we see, the goodness that we see, all of that is a gift from him. Paul makes these three declarations that everything is from him, through him, and to him. In other words, that he is the source, he is the sustainer, and he is the goal. And what would it do in our lives if we lived with this perspective? That God is the source, the sustainer, and the goal of all things. So even just pause right now. What is something you're thankful for? If the invitation is to live gratefully, and obviously this week being Thanksgiving week, when the whole point of it is to give thanks, we should practice that, right? The reality is that Thanksgiving shouldn't be a holiday we celebrate once a year, but it should be the reality of our lives as Jesus followers. Thanksgiving is just that prompt and that mental reminder, sort of that reset. But for right now, just what are you thankful for? Just mentally think about that. 
What are the blessings? How can we begin to cultivate that spirit of generosity? Because I'll tell you, everything in this world, is, it will tamp that down. As if you don't have enough, or as if, as if it's all about to get taken away, as if the world is out there to get you. It takes an, an intentional mental effort to become a person of gratitude. A simple way to do this, this is the challenge I actually gave to the, the guys uh, a few weeks ago was um, to start a gratitude journal. It's super simple. It sounds a little bit silly. But it's amazing how it, just this little shift in our brain can change our perspective about everything else. When we begin looking for the things that we're actually thankful for. Because isn't it just easier to see the things that you're not thankful for? If we're just honest. Isn't it easier to notice the things that we're disgruntled or unhappy about in life? And so a gratitude journal is really simple. I mean, you can take it or leave it, do what you want with this. But basically, you start first page and write 25 things that you are thankful for in your life. And then every day, wake up, and one of the first things you do is to write down three things that you are thankful for from the day before. Now, here's what it does. It makes you start looking for the things that you're thankful for. Because most of the time, we move into autopilot, and we don't even notice them. And so we go back and go, oh, yeah, that conversation was super encouraging. Oh, that person showed up when I, I didn't know. Super thankful for that amazing meal that I had with my kids. Whatever it is, what are the things that you're thankful for? Try that for 30 days and just see if there's a, a change of posture in your heart and your perspective. So God is the source. He is the sustainer, but he's also the goal. So how also do we cultivate this perspective? Well, here, just take a simple example. Do we see everything that we have as being from God and through God and for God? So right now your house or where you live. What would it look like to live or, with this perspective of recognizing that, that my house or my apartment or this place I live, it's from God? So thank you, God. Thank you for this roof over my head. God, thank you that there's a place for me to lay down. God, thank you for this. This is from you. You're the one that sustains me here. But what would it also take you to the next step of where Paul goes? What would it look like to live as if that is for God, not just simply from God? I think sometimes as Christians, it's easy for us to get that first half. Yes, I recognize God. Thank you for all the blessings in my life. It's from you. But we don't take the next step, which is really the essence of what it means to be a Christian, is recognize all of it's not just from him. All of it is for him. And so what would it look like to begin to live to say, okay, God, thank you that you gave me that. Now what do you want me to do with it? What would it look like for me to live as if my house or apartment is for God? What do you want to do here, God? We got this kitchen. We got an oven. What do you, what do you want me to do with that oven? The house is big, so we'll say your lawnmower. All right, God, thank you for my lawnmower. All the, not all the time am I actually thanking God for my lawnmower. If you saw my lawnmower, you would understand. It break, I won't go into my lawnmower. Anyway, I can tell you that story later. I spent more money on repairs for my lawnmower than I did ever on the actual lawnmower. And every time I think, this will fix it. This will be worth it. I'm not going to go out and buy another lawnmower. 
But if I actually did the cumulative total of the bills that I've paid to fix that stupid... Anyway, thank you, God, for my lawnmower. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little. But God, this is from you. Thank you that I even have a lawnmower. I'm not out there with scissors cutting my grass. And, and, but this is for you. God, what do you want me to do with this? Yes, obviously, you know, tend, the, tend my garden. But God, what else? Is there my neighbor that doesn't, can't? mow their grass? How can I, what does this mean that this lawnmower is for you, God? God, what do you want me to do with it? Or even so much to say, and I just talked smack about my lawnmower, so this is now a bad example, but not just simply am I going to use it for somebody else, but there's somebody else that needs it. God, it's not mine anyway. It's from you in the first place. It's for you and your purposes. So here's somebody that could actually, that needs it more than I do. What if you looked at every piece of clothing in your closet that way? It's from you, God, thank you. But God, what is this for? And if it has no purpose for you, why am I holding on to it? My paycheck, God, this is from you. God, thank you. It's for you. How do you want me to use it? Where do you want this to go? My family, God, thank you. This is from you. My marriage? But God, what does it look like? This is for you. How do I see my marriage as being something through which God is, is wanting to accomplish his purposes here on earth? If we begin to believe that it's simply for us, not for God, we are not living as Christians. Because the essence of what it means to be a Christian is to recognize that